Oh, good morning, Mafra friends. Uh, good to be with you uh, again by video. Uh, again, thanks to Wes Jackson for getting this together. Uh, but it was great to see so many of you at the camp last weekend and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you found uh, Peter Adams' talks uh, a blessing and, and it was just good to be together uh, in that uh, beautiful place. But here we are again today. Uh, we're about to restart a series that we began some time ago on the Book of Acts. We're up to our third go at that. Uh, so let's pray before we begin. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the, your word which uh, teaches us and uh, rebukes us and corrects us and trains us in righteousness and equips us for every good work. We pray that we, you would use your word uh, in our lives today uh, to show us the power of the gospel to break people out of the darkness of sin and slavery to uh, the world's forces, uh, to show us again uh, the wonder of the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so please uh, speak to us today, uh, encourage us, inspire us and challenge us to be among those who serve the great cause of the Lord Jesus in our generation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting again with the book of Acts. Uh, we're up to Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6. But just a bit of a recap. Uh, the, Apostle, the, the Lord Jesus uh, was crucified and uh, was raised from the dead. And Acts chapter 1 begins with him outlining the mission of the apostles, those who he had called and commissioned to carry on his work in the world. Now, we believe that Luke wrote his gospel and he also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke tells us that his first book was about all that Jesus began to do and preach. And so Jesus is going to continue his doing and his preaching, not in person, not physically, but through his apostles and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, is a very important sentence for understanding the whole of the book. It's really like the essay plan. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They're Jesus' words to his disciples. And really that's uh, an outline of the whole book. And so the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7, are based in Jerusalem. But then Judea and Samaria, the region around Jerusalem, becomes the sphere of activity in chapters 8 to 12. But then after chapter 12, uh, the scope broadens and chapters 13 to 28, the rest of the book of Acts, concerns the mission to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Uh, the book of Acts ends in this, the great city of Rome, the greatest city of the ancient world. But in the early chapters, the focus is on ministry to Jews, uh, descendants of Abraham, people who had the old covenant, the, the law of Moses. But the focus goes in chapters 13 to 28 to preaching the good news of Jesus to the entire world, to people who are not ethnically Jewish, people who are Gentiles. And that's where we find ourselves now. Uh, the book of Acts shows us that uh, in the first part, Peter was the central human character. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the, the, the central character of the whole of the book of Acts. Uh, but in, in human terms, Peter is the dominant character in the first part of the book. But then the focus shifts to Paul. The Apostle Paul miraculously saved uh, through a vision in chapter 9. Uh, he was turned from being a hater of Jesus into his most passionate advocate. 
And so from in these chapters, we read that Paul embarked on three missionary journeys with varying accomplices to help him take the good news of Jesus. And so the first missionary journey saw Paul uh, based in Antioch and then moving in the eastern Mediterranean region into that part of the ancient world that the Romans called Asia, the province of Asia, in what we would now call Turkey. But our reading today is where Paul is in his second missionary journey. And I've, been, I've given today's talk the title, A Vision Which Changed the World. Uh, and you'll see why in a moment. So Paul's secondary missionary journey uh, begins in chapter 15, verse 36. But read with me from chapter 16, verse 6, and, and follow along on the map, and we'll show you where some of these places are. So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now Troas had a famous name in earlier times. It was the city that was known as Troy. So if you've heard of the story of the Trojan horse, then you know about Troy. Um, well, it became known as Troas, and that's where Paul and Silas end up. So at verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. This is really quite uh, extraordinary and, uh, and transformative because what we see here is nothing less than the gospel going from Asia into Europe. So there's a very narrow body of water there that became known as the Dardanelles. That's where the Australians uh, fought with the New Zealanders in the First World War at Gallipoli, uh, so just north of Troas there. Uh, but that little body of water separates the continent of Asia from the continent of Europe. This is the first preaching of the gospel to European audience, and it took place in Philippi. Now, Paul had always said that in, in Romans 15, he made it quite clear, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul wanted to be a pioneer. He wanted to take the message of Jesus to places where no one had ever heard it. And there's still plenty of people that haven't heard it. And we need more pioneers like Paul to take it there. But there's something else that's very interesting about these, these verses here. This is the first time in the book where the author has appeared. We believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And we find here that there's a transition in the pronouns from they in verse 6 and verse 7. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Verse 7, they had come up to Mysia. They attempted to go into Bithynia. But then in verse 10, we read immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the first of the famous we passages of the book of Acts, and it's worth paying attention to it as you read the book of Acts yourself to see how the pronouns change from the third person, they, them, to the first person plural, we, us. And we believe this is a sign that what is being described here was 
witnessed by Luke as an eyewitness. He hadn't heard about it and wasn't reporting it, but he was there and he saw these things happen. So you'll find this also in chapter 20, verse 5 to 21, verse 17, and then chapters 27 to 28, which includes the famous description of of Paul's terrible shipwreck. Luke was there. He was a participant in all of those things. Now, the, the matter of why Paul... Uh, was not allowed to preach in Asia. We'll come back to that in a little while, but it's interesting that there was this direction of God. The Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word in in Asia, but then in verse 7, we're told that the Holy Spirit has another name. He's the Spirit of Jesus. But then God uses this vision of the man in Macedonia to change Paul's plans and to get him to cross the Dardanelles and to go into Europe. So this is a spirit-directed, a God-focused preaching mission. Uh, and, and we'll come back to some of that in a moment. What I'd like to do now is to, to read different sections of the, of the text as we find them from uh, verse 13 onwards, and we'll just offer some comments about that as we go. So pick it up with me uh, at verse 13. What we'll find here is the description of the conversions of three different people, which give us a window into the, the preaching of the gospel and the scope of the message of Jesus to change different people's lives. The first person we meet is a woman called Lydia, who's a very wealthy woman. And so we read at verse 13, Paul and Silas have gone into Europe. They're in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptised in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul was always on the lookout for opportunities to preach, and he usually began where there was a synagogue. It seems that there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, but there was a place where people who had begun to worship the Jewish God, Yahweh, uh, had gathered. Now, um, it seems that there weren't enough Jews in Philippi for there to be a synagogue. And it seems that the focus here is on women who were praying. So perhaps not not many men had been attracted to Judaism in Philippi. But so Paul heard about the place of prayer down by the river and he goes there. We're introduced to Lydia. We're told that she's from Thyatira. It's a name you should remember from our preaching of Revelation. It's one of the seven cities in Revelation. You can read about it in Revelation 2. And she's a seller of purple goods. Now, uh, hidden in those terms, there is an indication that she's a woman of wealth. Uh, The purple dye, which was a product of Thyatira and a few other places in the area, was very difficult to get and very expensive to produce. And so if you owned a purple garment, it meant you were wealthy. She was a person who traded in those things. Perhaps she'd come to Philippi from Thyatira to be the agent in Philippi of a Thyatiran business. But we put all these things together um, and we know that she was a woman of means because she had a house that she's able to welcome uh, Paul and Silas into. Uh, She was a person who was was of some wealth. Um, But she's a worshipper of God. Now, what that means is she's been attracted to to the worship of the God of Israel. Um, There were some throughout the Roman Empire who had grown tired, they'd grown exhausted of the the great pantheon of of Roman gods of the ancient world. 
uh, and they were attracted to the strict monotheism, the worship of one God that uh, evidenced itself in the Jewish faith. Uh, they liked the Jewish law. She'd become a worshipper of God, but she wasn't saved. She needed to hear about Jesus, and that's something that's really important uh, for us to remember. Um, I uh, had a fair bit to do with a very old man a few years ago who was close to death, and, uh, and I believe that he committed his life to Christ before he died. But I was sitting next to a man at a funeral who knew him a bit and didn't know that he'd become a Christian very late, and he said he had a faith. Well, he may have, but the question is, did he have a saving faith? It's not enough just simply to believe that God exists. We need to come to know him. And it's quite clear in the book of Acts that there's only one way to come to know the God of all the world, and that's through his son whom he sent, the Lord Jesus. Saving faith is not just believing in God, it's believing in the one that he sent. And so God opened her heart. And that's another sign, one of many throughout the book of Acts, that when salvation comes to a person, it's always at God's initiative and it's always a miraculous and sovereign work of God. Uh, the human will needs to be overcome. The hardness of the human heart needs to be restored. And only God can do that. God is always sovereign in salvation. Yours, mine, Lydia's, everyone's. Well, you'll notice there that having trusted the Lord Jesus, we're not told really what the message was that was preached to her, uh, but we can conclude because we've already seen the kinds of things that people preached. Luke assumes we already know the gospel because we've heard it preached in so many other occasions earlier on in the book, and so he doesn't need to explain it over and over. It's safe to assume that Lydia came to the conclusion that has been expressed in chapter 4, verse 12, that there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by, among men by which we must be saved. So she's come to the same conclusion as other converts to Jesus have. And she immediately begins to live out the implications of this new faith by inviting Paul and Silas to come and receive her hospitality in her home. But not only that, she's baptised and the other members of her household. Now, we're not told that the other members of the household heard the news, but they wouldn't have been baptised if they hadn't believed. And so baptism was offered immediately, as we'll see again later on. So here's a wealthy woman who has already gained an interest in Israel's God, but God opens her heart to receive the apostles' message and she trusts in the Lord Jesus as the only name under heaven by which she can be saved. We move on to the second major personality of this story and it's a slave girl. So we've gone to the other end of the spectrum. We've gone to, from a wealthy seller of expensive clothing to a person of no account at all in the eyes of the ancient world, except for what she can do for her owners. So in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So this woman, this slave girl, is a chattel. She's a possession. 
She's possessed by human masters, but even worse, she's possessed by the devil because she has a spirit that enables her to say extraordinary things, things that were unknown to people who weren't possessed in the way that she was. She had a demonic understanding of the true nature of Jesus. Now, this is a, a challenging thought, but it's one that we've seen elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus had an encounter at the synagogue in Capernaum. We read about it in Luke chapter 4. There was a man there who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out, cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see... The Bible positions us as being participants in, a, participants in a spiritual conflict. There's an unseen world where there's angels and where there's demons. And we're here and we can't see it. And yet that's going on in the background. The Bible's a supernatural book. It's a book which says that there is a real spiritual world. There is a real spiritual conflict. And somehow it seems that those spiritual forces which oppose God and his people have some insight into who Jesus is and it enabled this girl as it did the man in Capernaum to speak words which were actually true in identifying who Jesus is. Now in the book of James chapter 1 verse 18 uh, James says you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder so that takes us back to Lydia again she believed in God but it wasn't saving faith until her heart was opened. Even the demons believe in God. It's not enough just to believe in God. But these demonic forces seemed able, when they took hold of a person, to speak things that were unknown to other people that were in fact true about the Lord Jesus. But you'll notice here that when Paul intervened, which he did, he commanded her in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. That's what he said to the demon. There was an instant deliverance. There was no ritual. There was no laying on of hands. There was nothing. I've heard of attempted demonic deliverances. I know one quite well. There were, it happened uh, in, a, in a situation where I knew some of the personalities involved and physical violence was used and the woman ended up dying and it ended up in people going to prison. Uh, let me tell you, if a demonic deliverance is to be taken place, it's done with the word. No physical intervention is necessary. G Paul spoke in the name of Jesus and that demon left. Um, and that's how it has to be. Now, we're not told that she was converted to Christ, but it's safe to assume that she was, because otherwise it seems, why, why would Luke have included this story? But what we see here is that the gospel, the power of the news about Jesus, the one sent from heaven to be the world's saviour, that news has power even over the demonic authorities. But we're about to see a story where the message of Jesus, the message that Jesus saves, brings Paul and Silas into conflict with the, the secular authorities, with the world's governing authorities. So we've seen the gospel in, in, in triumph over spiritual forces. What about when it comes up against the Roman Empire? So we re read on uh, in verse 19, and we're going to find here that uh, conversion is bad for business. Here's conflict. Verse 19, when her owners, that's the slave girl, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here the claims of Jesus Christ are coming and the kingdom of God are coming into real conflict with the empire of Rome. Now note that Paul and Silas are indicated as still being Jews. At this stage in the Christian story, Jews and Christians weren't strongly demarcated. Uh, that emerges later on when the Jews act in hostility. Well, they've already been acting in hostility, but, but at the moment that hasn't become that evident to the people of Philippi. Uh, but there was, there was a time when Jews, where Christians were seen as just being a sect of the Jews, but there was an increasing separation as time went by. But these men are Jews and they're charged with, having, with, with introducing practices which are in opposition to the laws of the Roman Empire. That was a dangerous place for Paul and Silas to be, as is evidenced by the fact that they were beaten, beaten severely, and then put into prison. Now, the, the prison keeper, the jail keeper, um, was bound to make sure that everyone under his care stayed there and if any escaped then he would forfeit his life and so he was told to keep them safe he did that by putting them into the inner part of the prison the even darker and danker part of the prison uh, and he put their feet in stocks they were in agony from being beaten their agony would have been magnified by having to sit bolt upright with their feet fastened in a way that allowed them no movement at all uh, and that's the context in which they're placed there. Something to, to realise here is that the gospel is always countercultural. The gospel demands change personally, which will make us different from our family, from our friends, from our work colleagues. It will mean that we have to change the way that we live. There are certain things that are accepted as normal, uh, which will have to make way for the gospel. Uh, Paul himself, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he made that plain. He said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour. If you're a thief, you've got to stop thieving. You've got to start living a new way. The gospel requires change. We've seen it in Lydia. She wanted to offer hospitality. Um, the people, when they realised that, the, these men realised that this woman who'd been released from her slavery to demonic spirits, they'd lost their cash cow. They'd lost their money-making uh, enterprise. They were profiting from another person's exploitation. They were uh, dominating and profiteering, exploiting uh, someone made in God's image and their misfortune. Now the book of Proverbs makes it quite clear that rich and poor are made in God's image. Rich and poor have that in common. But Proverbs 22 verse 16 also points out that whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. This is a dreadful thing to do to exploit someone else's misfortune. So they were cast into the inner prison and there's a contrast here because they were put into the darkness of captivity but outside in the free world, so-called, they were still in captivity to the elemental forces of the spiritual world. And so we move on to the third personality, the Philippian jailer. 
Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptised at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now remember that Lydia was a believer in God, but this is true belief in God, responding to the word, to the message of the Lord Jesus. That's true belief in God. That's saving belief. Now this is extraordinary. Remember that the Spirit wouldn't allow them to preach in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus forbade them and directed their paths elsewhere. You might be wondering, well, the Spirit directed them to end up in prison? Is that good guidance to receive? Would you sort of take that as a sign that you were following uh, good guidance if you ended up beaten and stuck in stocks in a dank, dank and dark prison? Well, this is extraordinary because we find them singing, rejoicing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They probably couldn't sleep anyway because of the pain and the discomfort. So rather than grizzle and mumble and complain, they were rejoicing, singing hymns of praise. This reminds us of Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where Peter and the apostles were beaten for preaching about Jesus and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's a feature of Christians everywhere. People who really know Jesus know that if suffering comes from following him, it's a privilege. You've been counted among those that are amongst his people. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Congratulations, he says. It means you're really one of mine. And so Paul and Silas, there they are in prison. So God sends an earthquake, extraordinary. Uh, the earthquake loosed all the bonds of all the prisoners. But the even more extraordinary thing is none of them escaped. Paul and Silas didn't take that as a God-sent opportunity to flee. They used it as a God-sent opportunity to preach. In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, Paul later wrote to his friend Titus. He said that uh, people need to, Christians need to adorn the gospel. There was something about Paul and Silas, their singing, their refusal to, to give in to complaint, uh, their acceptance of this, but then the fact that they didn't escape, that terrified the, uh, the, the jailer. And so we, we read there that he was terrified and he throws himself down and he says, uh, he says, what must I do to be saved in verse 30? That is the biggest question anybody anywhere at any time can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Everybody lives in a world which is under God's eye. Everybody lives in a world which is God's creation. And we have obligations to our creator. He gave us the gift of life. And the question must be, what should we do with that gift of life? And the answer is, surrender it to the one who gave us. Live in fellowship, come to be reconciled with him. 
the jailer had this dreadful apprehension that with the earthquake and, and having seen the sign of these people beaten and rejoicing, that he had a desperate need and he pleaded with them, what must I do to be saved? And their answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from God's wrath, saved from the terrifying prospect that everyone faces that we will meet God and our lives will be weighed. How may the jailer be saved? How may we, how may anyone be saved? By believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now again, we're not given details here. What does it mean to believe? What, what, what does that mean? Well, you'd have to look back in, into the book of Acts because Luke's already told us they had limited amount of space to write on in those days. They just had a scroll. And so Luke assumes that we've been paying attention to earlier parts of the story where fuller expressions of the saving message of Jesus are, are given. And so in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches the first sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts, he talks about Jesus having been crucified by lawless men and having been raised from the dead. And having preached that, he says that this indicates that Jesus is God's Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that all of the Jews had been waiting for. But he's not just the Jews' Messiah and King. He's the whole world's King. And so Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, preaches the conclusion. This is what they must come to realise. He says, repent, turn away from your sins. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, this promise isn't just for the people hearing him. He says, this promise is for all who are far off, which means the Gentiles. It means the people in Europe, people who were not physically present in Jerusalem to hear him preach. The message was for them as well. The message is for everyone. Repent and believe and be baptised in the name of Jesus. Why? Because you'll meet God one day and you dare not meet him with your sins unforgiven. The things that separate you from his holiness must be paid for and they must be forgiven. That message is implicit every time it's indicated that a person has come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Because there's salvation in no one else, as we've already seen from Acts chapter 4. And so to go back to our reading at verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologised to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul responded, um, he was a person who knew the Roman law and he, as we read elsewhere, was a Roman citizen. It was illegal to imprison a Roman citizen. It was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without giving them a fair trial. The magistrates and the police had responded to the accusations of the slave girl's owner that this bloke's bad for business and he's against the Roman Empire. Paul demonstrates by putting up with being imprisoned and by putting up 
and not even uh, escaping when the earthquake enabled him to do so, that he's actually a good citizen. And in all of that, he demonstrates that the message of Jesus is not undermining, it's not radically in opposition to the political world of the Roman Empire. It's no threat to public peace. As a matter of fact, it would enhance public peace when people become good citizens of the kingdom of God. They'll be made better citizens of the empire of man. And so Paul uses the law to his advantage. He says, you've, you've wronged us, which imposes an obligation on those who had performed that injustice. So he invokes, as a, invokes his rights as a Roman citizen. The lawbreakers here are the magistrates and the police and the other people in town who'd beaten Paul and Silas. But notice his priorities. They've been beaten They've been wrongly accused. They've been put in stocks in the inner part of the prison. But when they went out of the prison, they visited Lydia and they encouraged the brothers. Clearly, other people had been saved in the time that Paul had been able to, to spend with Lydia and the others there. That was his priority. He didn't just sneak out of town. He didn't get right out of there. He made sure that those new believers were as well established as he was able to see them to be. So I called this talk a vision which changed the world. Uh, the vision was Paul's vision, the vision that he was given by the Lord Jesus to take his name before kings and emperors and, and before everyone who would listen. Jesus had said when Paul was converted that he was going to show him how much he had to suffer for the sake of his name, and here we see it. So Paul had a vision which compelled him to go and take the gospel where it had never been preached before, and then he received an additional vision of a man in Macedonia come over here and help us. But Paul was fired by the vision that he already had. And this other supplementary vision, sometimes people will receive them, but we've already got a vision for the gospel because we've been given this news that saved us, that's changed us, that has reconciled us to God and, and, and made us fit to live with him in heaven forever. We, we don't need additional visions because we've already got the vision. But Paul, in obedience to his first vision and to this vision from the man from Macedonia, went with the gospel into dangerous territory where he suffered terribly for the sake of preaching the gospel. But this passage we've read today shows us that the gospel is for everybody. It's for rich people like Lydia. It's for poor and destitute people, demon-possessed people like the slave girl. It's for servants of the state like the, the Philippian jailer who came terrified when he realised that his life was at risk. Sometimes we'll see God using incredibly powerful means to further his gospel efforts, earthquakes. But always the power of God is manifested in, in transforming people's lives. God must open the hearts of all who, who come to him. But why were Paul and Silas prevented from preaching in Asia? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because God wanted Lydia to hear, and he wanted the slave girl to hear, and he wanted the Philippian jailer to hear. And so good and all as it would have been for Paul to preach there, and he did later on anyway, at this point he had to go to Europe. Why was Paul prevented from preaching in Asia? Because God wanted the message of Jesus, the life-transforming message of Jesus, to be taken into new territory, into Europe. And this is significant. Most of us listening to this, 
I'm standing here before you, is a thoroughly European person. And it's because Paul was obedient to that vision that the gospel transformed the continent of Europe. Now, this is, this is a turning point in world history because most of the missionary endeavour of the church in, in the early years came from Europe. It was, the, it was Europe that sent missionaries out. Now, of course, lots of other places are as well. But this is, a, this is something that changed the entire world. But there's something else that we need to point out here. I was talking to um, a, a friend, a, a, China, a, a person of Chinese extraction who's a, a, a Christian, and she became a Christian from a Buddhist background. And when she told her parents that she trusted the Lord Jesus, they were disappointed, in fact, probably a bit angry. And her mother said to her, why have you accepted a Western religion? Well, she began to explain that she trusted the Lord Jesus. But we must remember this, Christianity is not a Western religion. It's not a European faith. It's not a white faith. Christianity came from Asia. Jesus was a Jew. But then it's not just an Asian faith either. This is a faith for the whole world because Jesus is God the Son. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit cooperate in this message that has to go to the whole world because the creator of the world wants the whole world to be reconciled to him. This is a message for everyone, everywhere. And yes, it does transform cultures. It changes people and it says there's certain things that just can't continue to be done. We all must make choices. But this faith in the world's creator, the faith in the world's saviour, shows us that there can be an end to the darkness of sin, to the darkness of captivity, to evil oppressive forces, to the darkness of a way of life that will lead to judgment and an eternal separation from God in hell. Accepting the, the Lord Jesus, the one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, will do for all who receive it what it did for Lydia, what it did for the slave girl, what it did for the Philippian jailer and his family. It enables them, like Paul and Silas, to rejoice, even in the midst of difficulty, to rejoice now, but to have an eternity of rejoicing to come. It's all because there's a message which changes the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these great words. We thank you for your servant, Luke, who wrote them down, who uh, wrote them so carefully. We thank you that we can read them in a language that we can understand. Help us to ponder these things deeply. I pray that if there's anyone listening today that hasn't put their trust in Jesus, they might believe in God, but they haven't yet come to that point of turning away from their sin, the sin that separates them from you and, and makes them subject to your wrath on the final day. Father, I pray that you would cause people's hearts to open to receive the forgiveness that Jesus died to win for us all on the cross. We praise you for his triumphant resurrection, for his power over all opposing forces. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that changes people from the inside out. And we thank you for the evidence that we've seen of that in these three personalities that we've seen today. Father, I pray that you would speak deeply to each of us and cause us to want to be among those who take the gospel where it hasn't been heard yet. Uh, so please send out labourers into the harvest field and make us among them, we pray. Grow your church here in Mafra and elsewhere through the preaching, through preaching the life-changing message of the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Okay, well, I'll see you next time. God bless you until then.